Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're starting something um, new this morning, uh, a new series called Transforming uh, Truth. And uh, the hashtag will come up any moment. Here we go. There we go, in the bottom right-hand corner. It's a bit blurry on the projector, but you'll see it clear on the screens. Transforming Truth. And um, uh, we'll spend some, maybe I'll make some comments uh, in the next couple of weeks about how we approach sermons or how I approach sermon series and, uh, uh, and what are some of the kind of guidelines in my mind and my heart as I think about where we're going and what we're doing next and so on. So this is a thematic series. If you like those, this is your turn. If you like expository series, then your turn will come. Uh, and by the time we get to the end, if you don't like sermons, then your turn will never come. But other than that, you will get your turn. Uh, the Bible is all kinds of different literature, speaks to us in all kinds of different ways, and therefore we uh, receive and learn truth from it in all different kinds of ways as well. What we believe, uh, and this is what lies at the heart of this particular series, what we believe is not static, but dynamic. Now, I don't mean by that that what we believe changes, although sometimes rightly it does, What I mean by that is that what we believe has a dynamic impact on our lives. What we believe changes us, whatever that belief might be. Paul put it like this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by by what? By what you think, by a renewal in your mind, by what you believe, because he understood what we all understand as we observe the way life works, but what I believe will, in fact, affect the way that I behave. And to live contrary to the way that I believe always ends in frustration and failure. If we believe the wrong stuff, then it will impact us in a negative way. If I believe that I'm useless at something, whether I'm useless at it or not, that belief will make me a prisoner in that area of my life. You with me? So belief has a dynamic effect on my behavior. But if you start to believe the truth, that truth will transform you, will change you, will have a dynamic impact on your life in a positive way. Every truth that you believe will change you. Every truth a step into the light. Every truth a step into freedom. Every truth a step into hope. Every truth a step into healing. Every truth a step into life. Capital L I. F-E. You with me so far? So Jesus said, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth will have a truly dynamic, transforming quality in your, my life. And that's what this series is all about. We're thinking this morning about creation. uh, And I think some of the greatest truths about creation get lost because they become hijacked by our current debates. I don't mean in churches, I just mean debates in the Western world at large. In the Western world at large, the conversations around creation are dominated by a scientific Western worldview, obviously, 
And therefore, when we come to Genesis chapter 1, or some of those early stories, we are so full of ourselves that we expect it to be addressing the questions that we are asking. And the conversation currently is dominated, I think, by two questions about the world. The the first is when. When was the world made? Or when did it come into existence? Is it an old earth? or a young earth, and how did it come into existence? Did it come into existence in some short, sharp process of six days, or did it evolve over an extended period of time? And so because those are the questions that fill our minds in our world, we come to the Bible expecting them to address those questions in the way that they are formed in our heads. Now, it's obvious even as I'm speaking that that's not the case, and that takes us into difficulties before we've even begun. The creation stories are not scientific textbooks, however much we would like them to be. They're not even GCSE science textbooks, or year six science They're just not. They're just not trying to address those issues at all. That doesn't mean they have nothing to say, and it doesn't mean they aren't packed with all kinds of truth. We just need to be mindful that they're not trying to answer our questions. And the Bible needs to be understood often like that. I mean, if you look at it from a science textbook point of view, it's a bit weird, isn't it? You get plants on day three and no sun till day four. What do your plants need? Son, weird, that's the wrong way around for a start. It's not trying to be a textbook. Psalm 104 verse 5 says that he set, that's God, the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. We know that's wrong, don't we? The world is moving all of the time. It never stops moving. The moment the earth stops moving, we will be in trouble. So you could go, the psalmist is wrong. He does not, no, clearly he's not wrong. He's not trying to make some kind of spatial comments about the nature of the world. He's trying to say that what God has set in motion is solid and dependable. And to be fair, since he wrote that 3,000 or more years ago, we've had summer, winter, autumn and spring. So he was right. But he wasn't quite right if we were coming at it from a scientific point of view. The funniest, I think, is this one from Chronicles. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Taken literally, you would believe that there is a pair of celestial eyes rolling around the earth coming to your aid. If you happen to see God's celestial eyes rolling towards you, I suggest you pick them up and roll them back. He'll need them. Clearly, it's not saying that. And so we are reminded that the Bible is all kinds of different literature, metaphor, Law, some of it, history, some of it, prophetic, some of it, poetry, some of it, didactic or teaching, some of it. Do we believe the Bible is true in all that it conveys through its variety? Yes, absolutely. Do we believe that every word is literally true from my particular worldview? No, that would be an absurd conclusion. The creation stories are way more poetic than they are scientific. It would probably help us if the Hebrew writer had put at the top of the page, this is poetry. That would have helped us. But of course, he didn't because everybody knew that when it was written. It's just that we don't naturally think of it so quickly. You see, if you were looking for a scientific answer to the regularity of the seasons, 
you probably wouldn't pick up a book entitled Poems for All Seasons. You would understand that those two things were doing something quite different. And to try and use one to answer the other question would be flawed. However, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because it's poetic doesn't mean that it doesn't contain truth or factual truth at that. Almost all literary scholars would assert that this is a poem. And we'll come back to several of the reasons why a little bit later on. In fact, let's do that now rather than leave it hanging. Now that I've been rude about Genesis chapter 1 as a scientific textbook, which is a bit presumptuous of me, given the author of creation was its author, ultimately, uh, let me marvel with you for a moment about its poetic nature. If it was a poem, you would expect it to have refrains, and it does. There was evening, and God saw it was Those refrains keep coming in the poem. You would expect that. If it was a poem, you would expect symmetry and rhythm. If you've got it open in front of you, and I hope that you have, you'll see day one, well, what you'll actually see is day one to three, things separate, and days four to six, things get filled in. Have you ever noticed that? Days one to three creates a gap. Days four to six fills them in. So day one, the light and darkness are separated, and day four, the light and darkness gets filled with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Clever, like there's a plan. Day two, water and sky get separated, but then on day five, they are filled in with fish and birds. Day three, land and seas get separated. On day six, they're filled in with animals and humans. There is an incredible symmetry about this piece of literature, and you would expect that to be so if it was written from a poetic perspective. Here you have cadence, rhythms, and patterns, but we're only getting started. Think about the numbers that jump out of you, out at you, just like they would in a piece of prose or poetry. Three days separating, three days that fill in. Notice the threeness of the creator, creator, word, and spirit. Notice that the word creator, and it's clearer in the Hebrew, and you probably haven't got the Hebrew open in front of you, so you'll have to take it from me, and then you can Google it when you get home to make sure that I'm not making this up. Creator is mentioned three times, beginning, middle, and end, and at the end, the word to make is repeated three times over. So you get three days of separation, three days filling, three-part nature of Elohim, that's the name of God that I hadn't mentioned, and three mentioned, three times mention of God making stuff. And then, of course, there's the pattern seven, seven days. The first verse has seven words. In Hebrew, of course, not in English. It doesn't work in English. Just like when you translate some things from another language, it just doesn't work. Second verse has 14 words, which is seven times two. You're on the money. Earth is mentioned how many times? 21 times, which is what? Three times Seven, good. 35 words are in the seventh verse. That's weird, isn't it? God is mentioned 35 times, which is a multiple of seven. It was so. Is mentioned how many times? Of course, you know this. Seven, yeah, good guess. And God saw how many times? Seven times. That's another good guess. Well done, you're getting the idea. So you thought about three and seven, and if you're a mathematical kind, you're going three and seven makes... Oh, I wonder if there are any patterns of ten, and it just so happens that there are. To make is mentioned ten times. According to its kind is also mentioned ten times. God said ten times, three times to people, seven times to creatures. Are you writing all this down? I hope so. Let there be ten times. Uh, let, let there be. Th- let, <laughs> let there be is mentioned ten times, three times in heaven, and seven times on earth. This is a fantastic piece of literature. It's amazing, and we're just beginning to scratch the surface. There's so many other rhythms of symmetry, we've just got no time to... to I, I'm going to rattle through it. Of course you're not writing it down, of course you're not taking it in, but I just wanted to give you a flavor 
of the depth and majesty and glory. And if God was going to open his book, you'd expect it to be a bit like this, wouldn't you? And it's glorious right there. And we miss the whole point sometimes when we bring our own questions and impose it on it. Loads going on here. and We need to honor it for what it is. And thirdly, as I said some moments ago, it's not trying to answer our questions. And unless we remember all this, we end up going down paths that become for us difficult cul-de-sacs. And I don't think the scriptures ever intended us to go down some of these paths. We pick up Genesis and read chapter 1, which we believe tells us that God made the world basically like this. He took five days to get it all ready. On day six, he put humans on the planet. On day seven, he washed the car and read the paper. That's effectively what it says, isn't it? If we take it at a very kind of face value look, that's what happened. And then we trace the ancestry from those six days, and we realize that human beings have been around for, oh, give or take about 10,000 years, and therefore the earth was around 10,000 years old, which is absolutely fine, and that might be absolutely true. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Do not misunderstand me, please. And then your son and daughter goes to school, and they come home from school, and they tell you that the best scientists tell you that the world is probably about 4.5 billion years old. What do you think, Dad? And you have this awful moment. No, no, the Bible's true, son, daughter. Or, ooh, who, who do you go with? Who, who do you back? Which horse are you backing, the science one or the faith one? As if they are two different things. And that's where we go wrong. Hold that thought. As if they're two different things. They're not at all. So we either end up rubbishing science, or we feel like we need to, or we end up rubbishing the Bible, and we don't really want to do that. And like a rabbit caught in the headlights, we do what every parent does when they don't know what to say, and just go... (laughs) And what comes out of your mouth is one of those phrases you vowed you'd never say to your kids, and it's right there, just because it is. And so back to these questions just for a moment. When? when, when is, it, is it an old or young earth? Are we 10,000 years old or 4.5 billion years old? Or somewhere other than those two extremes? And just to give you a flavor about how people um, a- approach these uh, questions in terms of these texts in Genesis. They're poetic for sure. That doesn't mean they don't contain actual truth. Some people argue that the earth is is 4.5 plus billion years and say that Genesis chapter 1 teaches that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, full stop. And the Hebrew would suggest a significant pause. In other words, God created some formlessness mess, some chemical mess, period, And then, later on, he created human beings and the kind of thing that we saw. So, in that say, they say the world can be as old as you like. Genesis isn't being in any way tampered with or disconnected with. You can easily make a case for a very old earth. Others say, no, 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 it's much more straightforward. Look, six-day creation, nothing to everything in six days. Therefore, the earth is not old, as scientists suggest, but young, as the Bible says. Now, that's not a totally ridiculous position either. Science is only observing what it thinks it can see. And science, from our standpoint, observes the world and thinks that the world is pretty old. Young earth advocates will say, well, the reason the earth looks a lot older than it actually is, is that the earth went through a trauma, and if you go through a trauma, you look older than you actually are. That's why I look around 50 when actually I'm 21, because I've worked here for a while. You go through a trauma and you look old, even though you're not. So the earth went through a trauma like a flood. See what I did there? Like a flood. 
And therefore the earth looks old, even though it's not. So they have a get-out-of-jail card that way as well. So, what's the answer? Is the earth old or young? Yes. How was it created? What's the whole six days thing all about? Over time or six days? Should we try and deduce some kind of six-day process? Or did the world evolve? Did the world mature? Now, clearly, what evolution has become to be understood in popular conversation is that it sort of evolved out of nowhere. Darwin himself never uh, articulated or agreed with that, that there was some kind of spontaneous, utterly random uh, happening with no governing laws. But if you mean by evolution that the world developed and grew and matured or evolved over time, then you could argue that Genesis supports that conclusion. You might say, no it doesn't, it talks about six days. Yes, but the six days are confusing. Reason number one, the seventh day hasn't ended yet in the story. Check, it doesn't end. So clearly the idea of a day is used to mean more than just what we would understand to be 24 hours. In fact, 24 hours doesn't exist until day three, so it's hard to work out what day one and day two are talking about, necessarily. So it's a confusing picture. It's also true that Jewish rabbis and early Christian fathers didn't believe in a literal six-day interpretation, which is surprising. However... There are very good arguments suggesting that six days is a literal reality and our rhythm of weeks and so on support that. So, what's the answer? Was the world created in six days or through an extended process of time? Yes. Those are all the questions that everyone is bothered about and it's a smoke screen. It's a smoke screen. I can spend my life debating those things and I can come to a conclusion that's perfectly faith-filled and showing good evidence, good kind of support from the scriptures because I believe in the scriptures but in the end I can make that a smokescreen for what's really going on right here in these verses. The issue is not when or how but the primary issue is who or who not. You see there are two choices. Either nothing made everything, or God made everything. Either nothing made everything, or God made everything. Now, I appreciate in that simple statement, God needs defining. What kind of God made everything? What do we believe about him? The moment that we ask that question, we find ourselves back in popular culture where science and faith are put at opposite ends as opposing forces. You see, popular evangelists for atheism, like Richard Dawkins, will say, it's God delusion, for example, that option one is that nothing made everything is the result of scientific proof, and option two is the result of blind faith. And in popular conversation, we have created these two extremes that are poles apart and we can't find a way to navigate through it. It sounds impressive, but it's wrong. The person who believes everything came from nothing is just as much acting in faith as those of us who would say creation came from a creator being. The second thing that that you hear quite often is that science has answered faith. Your son or daughter will come home from school and say, I don't believe in God anymore, I believe in science. 
You're all looking at me blank like you've not inhabited this world for a long time. That's exactly what happens, isn't it? And so, and so in, their, in their, their mindset, there's, there's this already set up that these two things are somehow in, in contradiction, that they're opposing things, that, that, that they, they can't sit side by side. And then you can just say things simply like, do you know that 40 plus percent of top level scientists are Christians? Oh, there's a thought. Because they're approaching things from different vantage points and neither of them are excluding the other. Science hasn't answered the God question and by itself, our own observation, it never will. So, either nothing made everything or God made everything... Uh, and you're left to decide. And the problem is, the smokescreen that we've been talking about paralyzes people, and they end up talking about all the issues around the edge and never getting to the crux of the matter itself. I urge you to get to the crux of the matter if you haven't done that already. And to get to the crux of the matter, I would urge you to eliminate one of these options because they are so, it's so terrifying that you need to be absolutely certain before you take a step of faith. You see, option one, I think, is totally terrifying. You've come from nowhere. Option number one, you are here, therefore, for nothing. No good reason at all. You're going nowhere, which makes actually your life completely pointless. Honestly, complete waste of time. It's just nothing. It's just a blow in the wind. You matter for nothing. You're just a spontaneous reaction of some kind, somewhere. Totally meaningless, completely random, no purpose, no rights, no expectations. Human beings become completely irrelevant and accidental. That's where one path takes you. The universe is to be reduced, and I quote Dawkins, to blind forces and physical replication with no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. No evil? Tell that to a child that's been molested, or a wife that's been beaten, or to a man that's been tortured. No good, tell that to a person who's given of themselves for the whole of their lives to others. You see, option one is, is terrifying. And we have to, therefore, look at it very carefully. That we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. And I would suggest to you this morning, and you can feel it already in the room, everything within us screams against that reality. You with me? And I tell you, it's not just because we're people of faith. We could have this dialogue almost anywhere. And for most people in most places, there would rise up this, this incredible sense of, ah, that's not right. That isn't what's right. That isn't the truth that ultimately transforms. Because it doesn't matter what your circumstances, what your faith has been, what your situation is, the world over... And obviously I get involved in this a lot. The world over this week, people are planning funerals. And the detail really, really matters. And the reason the detail really, really matters is that for those people who've lost someone, that life really, really matters. Because deep down in our being, we know that we are valuable beyond words. And if you don't understand why there is that instinctive reality that human beings matter, it's back to Genesis chapter 1. Either nothing made everything, or God made everything. Let's turn things on its head, just for uh, a few more minutes. So we've still been trying to answer our questions. 
rather than think about what the writer might have been trying to communicate to us. So what if we went to this passage and we didn't ask ourselves, okay, these are the things that I need to know. I'm going to go to the passage and find them. What if we put those to one side and we went to the passage and we said, what is this passage trying to bring to me? There's some humility in that, isn't there? Of going to the text and saying, what would the text bring to me? Rather than does it answer my questions adequately? These words were first written for the benefit of the Israelites. The Israelites had spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Ten generations of harsh labor slavery. And they've just, by God's hand, escaped into the wilderness. Great. Thrilled about that for them. Hearts right in this. They've escaped after ten generations of slavery. These words are written to those people who are just beginning to think, after ten generations, what it means to live in freedom. They've never known freedom. Their fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, great-great-great had never known freedom. Suddenly they are in the wilderness beginning to look towards the promised land. The question being answered by Genesis 1 is this. How do you live in freedom? It's not really at its heart about whether God created the world or not. That was a given. They weren't debating that. That's our Western conversation imposed on the text. These words were written to those people who were asking the question and trying to work out what it means to live in freedom. Like long-term prisoners longing to get back inside because it's the only life they know, slavery was all these people knew. What would it mean to live free? Three main themes emerge, and there are probably more. But three, because there's time against us, and because we're Baptist, and because... I got tired after three, and because three. Ah, no, because there are three in the poem all the time. See what I did there? That's why. I'm kidding you. Because then there would have to be ten. And don't forget the seven. So we're on twenty before we started. But just three. Freedom is the discovery that it's all about God. If you want to live in freedom, it is the discovery that it's all about God. For those Israelites, it had been overwhelmingly about living and serving an earthly kingdom, an earthly master who could never be satisfied. The God of their world in Egypt, Pharaoh the king, everything was about him. No freedom is found Sorry, no, exclamation mark. Freedom is found in the discovery that everything is about God. This is a poem, a polemic, that it's all God's. In the beginning, God. He owns the apple orchard. He owns the trees in the apple orchard. He owns the apples on the trees. He owns the juice in the apple. He owns every plant, every rock, every animal, every person, everything. God owns everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What are the ideas here? First, that God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. Everything that you see belongs to him. 
Sometimes I say that to my kids when they get a bit carried away. You go, hey, guys, that's mine. And that, who paid for that? That's mine. That's mine. That's mine. They still want more money. But I tell them, that's mine. I give them the money. I say, you, that's mine. But how much more? It's mine, God says. In fact, God was clear to remind the people from time to time. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and some of it and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. The world is his dream, his plan, his design, his effort, his work, his delight. He saw that it was good. He took pleasure in the work of his hands. All of it, every bit of it, every time of it, all his. Colossians says that he holds it together by the power of his word. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He owns you. He owns me. He owns our house. He owns the bed we sleep in, the cup we drink from, the food on our table, the table itself. He actually owns the chairs around the table. All of it says, if your car's broken down this week, don't worry, he owns that as well. It's his car, your bike. He owns the bus pass. He owns your computer, your TV. He owns your golf clubs. He owns your pension. He owns your inheritance. It's all his. I love it when people assert their ownership, when they write inside a book their name. This book, it's mine. It just makes me tickle. <laughs> no, it's not yours. That's why I haven't given it back if you've lent me a book. <laughs> because it's his. See what I did there? Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And he reminds the people, he says to them in Leviticus, hey, you know, the land's mine, and you are aliens and tenants in it. The livestock, he says in the psalmist, is mine, the forest of cattle on a thousand hills. Haggai, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine. We haven't got time for all these verses. And, and, but, but sometimes something rises inside us and go, hang about. I worked 40 years for that house. That house is mine. I sacrificed my time and energy for those holidays. That holiday is mine. And so very wise as they're thinking about what it means to live in freedom, one of the laws in Deuteronomy says you must always remember that it's even God himself who gives the ability to make wealth. It's all his. Freedom is found in the discovery that it's all about God. All of it. And the moment that slips in my mind and in my heart, if I'm not free, I become a slave. Freedom is the discovery. It's all about God. Freedom is the discovery that it's personal, that relationships rule. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, personal, plural, we'll think about this next week. Uh, God is spirit. Ultimately, behind the world is not a series of laws, gravitation, genetic mutation, whatever law you choose. But behind it all is a person. That's a comforting thing, isn't it? Behind it all is a person. And that resonates with us as human beings because we're, we're personal. The idea that behind the existence of us is some impersonal set of laws seems equally uh, bizarre. People are to be most valued because we know they are the most valuable thing on earth. And even when we don't live like it, 
Even when we behave in our brokenness and in our fallenness like others do not matter, when it all comes down to it, at the end of the day, when you sit around your deathbed, you will not ask people to bring in all your certificates. Please bring in my bronze life-saving medal when I did it in my pyjamas. Please bring I attended three scout groups. You know, it's just not going to do that. But you will want people from the farthest corner of the earth, even for a moment in your presence, won't you? Because you know deep in your heart that that, when all is said and done, is what matters infinitely more than anything else. In a world, the hospital, I'm an NHS number. At the post office, I'm a postcode. At the tax office, I'm an inland revenue number. Loneliness is the biggest, the biggest by far, epidemic in our culture. So as urgently as ever, we remind ourselves that relationships rule. It was a personal God who was behind it all. If your family has been slaves for ten generations, and now we're slowly getting to the heart, there's one main point for this whole Genesis chapter 1, probably. If your family has been slaves for ten generations, what have you learned about your value? What has life taught you about your worth? Freedom is the discovery that we are valuable to him. There are two more amazing things about this poem that we need to remind ourselves of. The poem is written in such a way that the creation of human beings stands out like a blazing beacon. We teach that from our Western perspective because we note didactically that it is only human beings on which is conferred the right to be made or the reality of being made in God's image. So you hear that a lot. But what we miss, because we are not part of Eastern culture and we're not familiar with Eastern literature, what we miss is the rhythm of this literature and the way it's written in such a way that when you get to the point of humans being made, it's like the whole poem screams out. You can see it a little bit in the English. The first verse about creation is a small verse. The next verse is a medium verse. Then you get a large verse. Then you get another large verse. Then you get a medium verse. What are you expecting next? Small verse. So you go small, medium, large, large, medium, small. When you get to the small verse, that's when human beings are created. So what actually reads in the text is small, medium, large, large, medium, absolutely massive. And, and, and they see that, they're like straight away. But of course we don't, because we don't think like that. We don't respond to this type of literature in that way, naturally. You might if you're a particular poet and you're uh, really keen on Eastern literature. But other than that, you may not see that in quite that same way. The whole of the literature screams out about the value of human beings to creation. And secondly and finally, it's a chiasm which is another particular kind of Eastern literature which goes in a particular uh, schematic way. Uh, And what they would naturally understand, and Jewish teaching and Judaism and so on is is quite similar in this, that if there's something to be learnt, you don't expect to be told it, you have to discover it. Because you learn something better when you discover it. So in our culture, PowerPoint, we're teaching the kids in school three things on the PowerPoint. These are the three things you have to learn. They don't have to discover anything. They just have to be able to read it and remember it. And that's hard enough for most of us. 
But in Eastern literature, you've got to go looking for the discovery. It's like there's a, there's a secret that's embedded in the text that helps you unlock the whole. And this particular chiasm, it has a beginning and an end all around nothingness. We're running out of time. You can Google all of this stuff if you want. Nothingness. Uh, right in the middle is what they call the moad, the kind of treasure. The right in the middle is one single word that's the treasure that kind of unlocks the whole. And it's the word that we know as Sabbath. NIV translates it as sacred seasons. Festivals, parties, resting. The moments in life when you breathe. The treasure is that God is offering you the ability to breathe, to rest, to enjoy, to be. Think about its impact. You have been slaves for ten generations. How many days off when you're a slave? None. Ten generations. Your whole life has been defined by what you produce. They were producing bricks for Pharaoh's palaces. If you were unable to produce any bricks, you were of no value and therefore discarded by the regime. You didn't matter anymore. Your whole life was defined by your ability to produce. If you want to learn to live free, God says, you have to understand that God has made a world that completely redefines the rules. Where you are valuable not because of what you do, but because of who you are. You can rest. You can party. You can celebrate. You can breathe. Because He made this and He loves you and He's looking after it. You can rest as if all the work is done even though it isn't. Because that's His gift to you and to me. It strikes me that in a culture that is driven by looking right, being right, doing right, achieving right, this story at its heart is about you can be in his presence. That's it. And as these slaves who had worked all their lives, and we're like that, aren't we? Sit down for a minute. No, I can't. Just sit down for a minute. No, no, just... Or, no, just sit. Oh, I've got a few more things I've got to do on my task. Just sit. And we can't because we're slaves. We're slaves to the system called Egypt. You with me? And when he called them out of Egypt, he says, this is what it means to be free. Take a chill pill. Sit down for a minute. And breathe in the goodness of God. Ha! Fantastic, isn't it? You know? Just to be clear, don't write to me about the six-day stuff about the earth. I think God could have made the earth in six seconds. I couldn't care less. Six minutes, six hours, six weeks, six months, six years. He could have done it in six nanoseconds. You with me? That's not the issue. The issue is that he made this world. And he said, hey, this is so good. And we'll get on to sin and we've screwed it up and it's so broken. But fundamentally it was good. And God says, this is what you need to learn to be free. you just got to stop and breathe and let the life of God captivate you all over again. This is what I tell them not to do in cracking communication. Don't leave your notes so far behind that when you get to the end of what you know what you're saying, you've no idea what was next on your page. So they'll have me about that at the next time we meet. But it doesn't matter, does it? 
Because just stopping and breathing is brilliant, don't you think? Just stop. Do you know what happens if you stop? The world doesn't fall apart. doesn't come to an end. None of this over-responsibility stuff. Just breathe. Tucked away right in the heart of this glorious creation story is God's invitation for you to so know that you're loved. You don't need to do anything else in the world to prove it. That's a glorious thing. Let's be quiet for a moment. Should we rest for a moment? We'll rest until we start getting agitated. Let's just be quiet. There is an eternal person behind creation who values us infinitely. Our value is not dependent upon our lists of achievements or the fluctuating state of our relationship with family and friends. It doesn't have to be earned and it cannot be forfeited. It is given and grounded in the gracious and gratuitous love of God, the Creator. Our value is secure. Is that. Breathe it in for a moment. He loves you. You're of infinite worth and value. And there it is, right at the beginning of the story. All the stuff to come, the wonderful promises, the glory of the the life of Jesus, the wonder of his death for us, all will confer value on us. But right here at the beginning, freedom is the discovery. Not when I've done something, if I've done something, if I hadn't done something, if I could change something. No. No. 